Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, in this episode, we'll be beginning our look at the, the quote-unquote Vallis trilogy, Dick's, the final three novels Dick published during his life, and then we'll look at Radio Free Albemuth, which was posthumously published, but I think it really fits. It's almost like a draft of Vallis or, or a path to the Vallis story that Dick didn't take. I actually think it's better, and we'd be better off with that with uh, as kind of... Um, the story he told, I, I have a lot of, uh, I don't, I want to say I'm conflicted about Valves because my feeling is it's really one of his worst books and uh, one of his most self-indulgent, uh, if not, it's certainly it's the most self-indulgent book he, he published during his lifetime. It's, it's a very self, it's very self-centered. It, it's, it's bizarre. It's full of bad philosophy um, and it's, got some ideas in it it's got some set pieces and it's got some moments i i still like and you know i'll come back and, and look at this and i have some fun with this work but it's it's so muddled and i understand why that's attractive to some people and, and some people really like the goofy kind of uh, gnostic side of philip k dick i don't know um it doesn't really work for me um, and I, I think that's the case with most of the, the Vallis uh, novels. So The Divine Invasion, which really is a straight-up science fiction novel, although it deals with some of the themes that Dick's playing with here in, in Vallis. And then you got The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, which is a more conventional novel. It's, it's um, not really science fiction at all, except very loosely. But it also deals with Gnostic issues, and it's, it's his kind of take on, on Bishop Pike. And his friendship with Bishop Pike, and, and that's a that's a better novel. That's the best of the three by far. And then you have Radio Free Alphameth, which, as I said, was kind of a first draft of 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 Vallis. Now, I will say that Dick is aware that what he's doing is self-indulgent. He, for instance, uh, narrates from his own point of view. So the narrator of this novel, it's it's in first-person narration, is is Philip Dick, um, and it's the Philip Dick that wrote. Uh, do Android Dream of Electric Sheep or wrote uh, A Scanner Darkly or, or these other novels. So he actually references these these works at times. So clearly the narrator is Philip K. Dick, but the main character of the story is Horse Lover Fat. And within the first page or so of the novel, the narrator tells you that Horse Lover Fat is Dick. So throughout the novel, you're going to have these, you're going to have Phil Dick, the narrator, the I, and you're going to have Horse Lover Fat, in the same place together, talking to each other even. And this is just an internal dialogue between Philip K. Dick. Horse Lover Fat is the Philip Dick that experienced those strange phenomena starting in, in 1975-4. Those events that derailed his career at the time he stopped writing, as we've seen going through this podcast. He didn't write much in the 70s, uh, really after 70 one or so he stopped, he more or less stopped writing. He published some old manuscripts he had. He did write a couple books, but his publication, his publications really slowed down and he wouldn't really pick up the pace of writing until the very end of his life in, in 1980s. He dies in 1982, of course. So um, he 
you know, these, these final novels all came out in the last years of his life. And they, and I can understand why he wants to meditate on these experiences that had such a profound impact on him. Um, but they, I, I can't imagine someone who's not deeply interested in these phenomenon and take these phenomenon seriously getting much uh, value in it. Now, I do think Dick, though, is self-aware enough to realize what he's saying is a lot of nonsense. There's even moments in the novel where Philip Dick kind of steps out of himself and, and essentially says, this is preposterous and, and no one should take this seriously. And the, sometimes he's doing that from the narrator. He's doing it from the narrator's point of view. So he's essentially talking to his horse lover, Fat Side, saying what you're talking about is, is, is nonsense. Uh, these still uh these philosophical speculations, these theological ramblings don't really make any sense to anyone but but you. There's actually a passage, it's in chapter 8, where, where the, the narrator is talking about Parsifal. And there's a connection here between Parsifal with, uh, you know, in Parsifal, the Wagner opera, there's Amorphtas, who has the, the wound that won't heal and, and all this. And he makes a big deal of, of Wagner. Maybe we can get into that. I'm not really... I guess strong enough on Gnostic philosophy to to comment beat by beat on what he's trying to say. In fact, the the philosophy is kind of all over the place, and it seems kind of jumbled. And you know, some philosophy is written that way. I, I realize, but it's it's not as straightforward as a lot of his um, other works. And his works aren't necessarily that straightforward. I'm saying those other works, you can kind of grasp what he's trying to say and the themes he's trying to get at. This one is is just kind of a. It's almost like a he's he's vomiting all over the page. Um, but anyways, here's what he writes on this section. He says, he writes, Parsifal is one of those corkscrew artifacts of culture in which you get some subjective sense that you've learned something from it, something valuable or even priceless. But on closer inspection, you suddenly begin to scratch your head and say, wait a minute, this makes no sense. I can see Richard Wagner standing at the gates of heaven. You have to let me in, he said. I wrote Parsifal. It has to do with the grail, Christ, suffering, pity, and healing, right? And they answer, well, we don't read it. We Well, we read it and it makes no sense. Slam. Wagner is right and so are they. It's another Chinese finger trap. Or perhaps I'm missing the point. What we have here is the Zen paradox. That which makes no sense makes the most sense. I'm being caught in a sin of the highest magnitude using Aristotelian two-value logic. A thing is either A or not A. Everyone knows that Arist Aristotelian two-value logic is fucked. That's, and what I'm saying is that. Well, um, now he's having this cake and eating too here, right? He's he's accounting for the fact that maybe he is totally whacked and not makes not making any sense. And thing, you know, this happens to us from time to time. Things that make sense in our minds when we express them verbally, you know, they don't make much sense to to other people. I mean, that's that certainly happens. Um, but then he kind of goes back and say, well, maybe there is something more profound here. We're not in the Aristotelian world where it's either A or not A. It's either true or not true. There's there's some other ground where where, where truth exists. But I still think overall Dick is sane enough to, to present this a little bit tongue-in-cheek. So I think there's some pleasure you can get out of, out of just having some fun with this text. But again, unless you're really interested in Philip Dick's experiences in the mid-70s and how they had a profound effect on his thinking and you're someone who like reads the exegesis you know i don't i don't find like a repeat value in in coming to valis um but anyways that's that's kind of my brief introduction i'm not going to do multiple episodes on valis what i'm going to do is 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 
talk a little bit about the, the context. I'm going to talk about Dick's experiences in 74 and, and after, and then uh, quickly go through the novel, uh, its plot, uh, not point by point like I normally do, but I'm going to go quickly through it and, and you know, give some of my overall thoughts and where I see the important comments he's making and some of the, the good parts, the, what, I, what I do find is the good parts. I want to be as optimistic and, and benevolent as I can to this work. Um, I hope not to spend more than a couple hours on this, so we'll see where it takes us, though. So instead of uh, going to like a biography, I'm just going to go to the Wikipedia, and I'll just read through his paranormal experiences section. It's a little section on Wikipedia. You can check it out yourself. Um, and there's various aspects of it. One is, the core of it is this belief that he's receiving knowledge from some external force, right? Like the logos. So that's a big theme in this novel, is that there's an intelligence in the universe, essentially a logos that can communicate to us through various ways and is kind of controlling things and deriving things and, and, and has some relationship with the true nature of reality that we're not experiencing. Um, so there's that. And then Dick believed he was starting to get in kind of a conversation with this. Another part of it is his growth, his, the growth of his paranoia about state power. And it's in Vallis that Dick begins to write about the Black Iron Prison. I think this comes up in the exegesis too, so it's not original to this work. But of course, no one read the exegesis until um, it was published or in selections after he, after he died. So for a lot of people, this is our first entry into it. In fact, much of the novel Vallis is simply selections of the exegesis thrown onto, onto the paper, kind of a commentary on things that are happening in the, in the novel. That The novel's not autobiographical uh, entirely. It's mostly autobiographical, but in the second half especially, it kind of diverts and becomes a little bit science fiction-y and, and, and in some ways actually a little bit better. The first half is really hard to get through unless you, again, are really kind of fascinated by the, what happened to Dick. So let's talk about this. This is known as the 2374 experience. That's how we referred to it in the exegesis and some of his writers, meaning February and March 1974. So I'll just read some of this entry in Wikipedia. On February 20th, 1974, while recovering from the effects of sodium pentothal administered for the extraction of an impacted wisdom tooth, Dick received a home delivery of Darvon from a young woman. When he opened the door, he was struck by the beauty of the dark-haired girl and was especially drawn to her golden necklace. He asked her about its current curious fish-shaped design. It is a sign used by the early Christians, she said, and then left. Dick called the symbol of... Uh, Vesicle Pisces. The name seemed to have been based on his con conflation of two related symbols. The Christian Ithaca symbol, the two intersecting arcs delineating an efficient profile, which the woman was wearing, and the Vesica Pisces. That's just the intersection of two circles, uh, the shape you get when you, when you intersect two circles. Okay, going on. Uh, Dick recounted that the sun glinted off the gold pen pendant. The reflection caused the generation of a pink beam of light that mesmerized, mesmerized him. He came to believe that the beam imparted wisdom and clairvoyance, and he also believed it to be intelligent. On one occasion, Dick was startled by a separate recurrence of the pink beam. It imparted the information to him that his infant son was ill. The Dicks rushed him to the hospital, where suspicion was confirmed by professional diagnosis. After the woman's departure, Dick began experiencing strange hallucinations. Though initially attributing them to side effects of medication, he considered his explanation implausible after weeks and continued hallucinations. I experienced an invasion of my mind by a transitory rational mind, as if I had been more sane all my, all my life and suddenly I became sane, Dick told Charles Platt. 
Throughout February and March 1974, Dick experienced a series of hallucinations, which he referred to as 2374, shorthand for February and March 1974. Aside from the pink beam, Dick described the initial hallucinations as geometric patterns and occasionally brief pictures of Jesus in ancient Rome. As the hallucinations increased in length and frequency, Dick claimed to begin to live two parallel lives, one of himself, Philip Dick, another one as Thomas, a Christian persecuted by Romans in the first century AD. He returned to the trans, he referred to the transcendentally rational mind as zebra, God, and Valis. Dick wrote about the experiences first in the semi-autobiographical novel Radio Free Albemuth, then in Valis, The Divine Invasion, and The Unfinished Owl in Daylight. Um, all right. Okay, then in 1974, Dick wrote a letter to the FBI accusing various people, including the University of California, San Diego professor Frederick Jameson, of being foreign agents of the Warsaw Pact powers. He also wrote that Stanislaw Lem was probably a false name used in a composite committee operating on orders of the Communist Party to gain control over public opinion. At one point, Dick felt that he had been taken over by the spirit of the prophet Elijah. He believed that an episode in the novel Full My Tears, the policeman said, was a detailed retelling of the biblical story of the book of Acts, which he had never read. Dick documented and discussed his experiences in faith in private journals called his exegesis, portions of which were later published. The last novel Dick wrote was The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Um, end quote. It's kind of funny he's picking on Frederick Jameson. Frederick Jameson, by the way, is a, is a very good uh, critic and uh, uh, philosopher, literary critic, a Marxist. Uh, variant. He had recently just written a book called uh, The American Utopia, which I find a very fascinating idea, kind of recreating the idea of a universal army first used by Bellamy uh, in um, Looking Backward. Um, but he's most famous for uh, postmodernism, the, the cultural logic of late capitalism. Uh, and he wrote a great book on utopia, too. And he's, he's got nice things to say about, about about Philip Dick, especially his earlier work. I think in postmodernism, he wrote about Eye in the Sky and maybe some other novels. Um, so I don't know why Dick here was picking on Frederick Jameson, but he must have known about Frederick Jameson uh, in some way. So anyways, that's the summary of the experiences that, that uh, happened to him. All right, And he's going to spend much of his life trying to understand it, and he's going to uh, kind of go to Gnosticism as an answer of what's going on. But it comes down to, it seems to me, a belief that the world we live in is fake, which of course is an idea he plays with throughout his career, right? It, it, you know, it's not surprising that he goes to that idea, um, but it's, it's a, here it's, uh, it does have some political overtones, like the idea the empire didn't die. I mean, we can read that literally I mean, he had visions of the Roman Empire, apparently. So the belief that we're still in the Roman Empire was part of it. But I think there's another level to it, and that is just like underneath the facade of democracy, we have the endurance of, of tyranny and state power. And these are ideas you see in like Faith of Our Fathers. You see it in the Simulacrum. You see it in a lot of his works from the 60s, where he is writing about the endurance and the perpetuation of power in society. Um, in a lot of his dystopias, he writes about this stuff. So it's it's actually dealt with better in those novels, I think, than in Valis, where I don't quite know what to do with the Black Iron Prison. I don't quite know what to do with the fact that we might still be living in the Roman Empire or the Empire never died. You know, I kind of kind of see what we can do about the police state in Full of My Tears, The Policeman's Dead, or um, or the 
the, the, the structures of power in the simulacrum or novels like that. I, I can kind of conceive of ways out. Even our friends from Full X8 has an escape latch. There's not really one here. It's just there's something running the world external to us, connected in some way to the logos, right? And that there's a way to communicate. And Dick felt he had become a conduit, almost a prophet, right? I don't like Dick as a prophet. I don't think his best writing comes when he's thinking he's a prophet. But again, I understand why some people are attracted to this aspect of, of, of his work. Um, so that's my introduction to, to Vallis. Um, we're going to then go, for, I'm going to quickly go through the plot uh, uh, as quickly as I can. I'm going to record this over a few days um, as I think more and more about this. I'll jot down a few, a few notes and give my thoughts as I, as I go through and read this novel. Um, one more time, um, depending on your point of view, you can, you can imagine I'm doing it so you don't have to, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to shine away, f away from it. It's just, it's, it's a bit um, bizarre and the philosophy is, is a bit jumbled for, for my liking. But what I do like about Vallis, I'll just leave this, this like chapter of my talk on this point. What I like about Vallis is some of the set pieces, some of the moments, like when you have friends sitting around talking about theology and speculating about things that happened to him. When you have, we learn about his relationships with various women and how heartfelt he was and how hurt he was when one woman kills herself um, and how another was dying of cancer. Uh, you know, there's a wonderful scene where they go to a movie and they start to interpret the movie and they, they go a little bit far with it. But, you know, the way you see people break down movies on YouTube today, right? Of course, now people can watch movies frame by frame on their computers and, and really do those in-depth analysis. They have to keep going to the movie to see it a few times. But I actually love that, that stuff. You know, it's just friends uh, sitting around talking about life, not taking life too seriously. Unfortunately, that's not the novel we get. It's, you know, I, some, when I was rereading this, I was actually thinking or rereading the first half of it. I haven't got through all of it yet. But when I was rereading this, I, I thought, like, maybe you could imagine a lot of these conversations taking place even in a scanner darkly, like in those moments that maybe uh, Bob Archer passed, zipped through when he was looking back and, and, at the recordings, right? Because they're not that interesting in the context of that novel. But they're just friends hanging around talking and, and babbling because, you know, they don't have jobs, they're not really working. And I don't think that's the worst way to spend one's time. I, I'm not opposed to theological speculation and thought and conversation. I, I think that's actually a very valuable and meaningful, meaningful thing. It's better than jihad, right? It's better than other ways we can explore religion. It's better than religious paranoia. So I, I kind of appreciate some aspects of it. Um, what bothers me about the novel is its opaqueness, its self-indulgence, its... It's and it's pe overall pessimism, I think, too, uh, which I'll get to as I, you know, later on as I talk to it. So I'm going to sign off for now, come back uh, probably in a few days and start giving you my thought on, on some of the chapters, give you a brief uh, overview of the plot and then give you my final thoughts on it. Um, so I'll see you in a little bit. Well, I'm back. I finished reading the final few chapters of Vallis. I put my thoughts together. I sat on it for... A day or two um, and now I'm ready to give you my final thoughts on, on this novel. We're gonna do it all in one one go and I'll probably do that for the rest of the, the Vallis trilogy as well. So Vallis stands for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. It's kind of a, 
a, a, a technological uh, interpretation of the logos, the you know the the idea that knowledge, uh, information is at the center of reality. It's, it's a non-materialist philosophy, and I think one reason a lot of people will get turned off by Vallis or frustrated by it is it is because it is at the end of the day a very nebulous philosophy that's that's essentially non-materialist and it's hard to get your hands around right and maybe some people like that of course i know there's a space for for idealism and for gnosticism and these these types of speculations um, but it does make it a little bit harder to handle now i'm going to try a, a fairly objective reading of of this novel even though it's told from the first person it's told from philip k dick's point of view um, the early part of the novel is a, a fairly autobiographical description of, of his life. Um, names are changed, I think. Um, his, his name isn't, obviously, but names are changed and situations change. Uh, like his wife has a different name, but his son has the same name. Uh, the major events I talked about before, the, the 1974 events, are all described. Uh, all the orders a little bit changed from how I understand them. But he talks about those. He talks about his time in a, in a in a mental institution after a suicide attempt, and all these things, which are which are drawn from from life. The the dead friends, the friends who commit suicide. We saw some of that in A Scanner Darkly, in his uh, kind of eulogy epilogue to to that novel. Um, now, from his point of view, he spends much of the novel conversing with his friend Horselver Fat. Now, Horselver Fat is simply Philip Dick. It's admitted, like in the first page, essentially of the book, that he is Horselver Fat, but it's it's a part of Philip Dick's identity and consciousness. Now, towards the end of the novel, he almost becomes a separate character and can be in a physically in a different location, and that's just um, a little Philip K. Dick weirdness. How Horselover Fett's aspect of his personality becomes a separate person, but throughout the rest of the novel, most of the novel, he's just always with Philip Dick, always with the narrator. So I'm not going to talk so much about Horselover Fett, I'm just going to kind of look at it more from a third person's perspective. Objectively, what the novel is, it's about a crazy guy who meets some crazy cultists, and, and that's pretty much the whole story. It doesn't amount to much more than that um, at its most uh, objective and superficial. So Philip K. Dick begins to exhibit mental illness after his friend Gloria, a drug addict, kills herself. And this is described in the first chapter and is a very traumatic event for Philip Dick. And it really is the beginning of the splitting of his consciousness and his, his mind. So yeah, the, the suicide of Gloria is what begins this break in his, in his mind. Um, now, it's at this time, uh, I think it's chapter two or so, he starts to have the, he starts to retell the, 17, the 1974 experiences, the pink beam incident. Later on, he sees the, the thing with the fish and the, you know, the fish symbol, which, he's, which he mistakenly interprets as kind of a divine encounter. But the heart of it is this pink beam experience he had. Um, and how does he respond to this? Well, he begins basically by talking about it uh, and writing about it. And he does both. And... Uh, the writing part of it is, I think, a bit unfortunate, uh, at least as was presented here. Essentially, we get huge selections of the exegesis presented to the reader in, in just kind of unedited, well, I guess they're edited because he's picking from it, but they're just kind of slapped into the text. And often, instead of really explaining the idea, Philip Dick just says, well, let the exegesis explain this. And if, even if it's perfectly clear to him, it's not. Uh, I think he somehow realized this because at the end of the novel, he actually includes all those selections of the exegesis that he included in an order. And if you can read through that, you kind of get a better idea of his philosophy. And we'll, we'll get to that, what philosophy he figures out after this pink beam experience. 
Um, but I really do like the parts where he's talking about his experiences because this leads to a various conversations with his with his friends. And there's two main friends. Uh, Kevin is is a skeptic. Uh, actually, both of his friends are fairly skeptical of the experiences that that Philip Dick is going through. Um, but they kind of bring different things to the conversation. Kevin brings his overall skepticism and his more um, orthodox views. David, another friend of his, really brings the problem of evil, and he comes coming back to this. And he's even got a, like a symbol of the problem of evil, and that is his dead cat. And he wants to, he you know, he kind of says, "If God's there, why did my cat die?" And so this is an ongoing question. So, he, so the problem of evil is something Dick explored in a lot of his works, and it's not surprising it comes up here again. So that's what we get in a lot of the early part of the novel is just his conversations about these experiences. Um, he, basically, he comes to think that God is essentially information, the logos, and that a savior is coming and that we live in a false reality called to him the black iron prison. Um, his friends hear this and they sympathize with them and they, 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 they think he's going nuts. They think he's losing it, but they do debate him and talk with him. And there's really some actually wonderful moments of just friends sitting around talking about theology, right? They're not killing each other. They're not forming movements. We'll get to movements later on. They're not, uh, you know, they're not religious nuts, really. They're just people with, you know, I guess this is past the time Philip Dick is using drugs, but they're, um, you know, they're just, it's kind of like guys hanging out, getting high, talking weird stuff. Now, the first half of the novel covers... There's like a transition. Much of it covers his own life, and you think most of it's drawn from life. Most of the events in the second half of the novel take place in, well, it's eight years later. So it's 1982. That's the year Dick dies. Um, and then that's what makes this novel a kind of a science fiction novel, because it is projecting into the future just a few years. This was written in 1980, published 1981, the same year Divine Invasion was published. So he's, it's actually literally set just a year after it was was published at least the, the second half of it so a lot of it is is building up to these kind of new events but a lot of these as i said are drawn from life um so uh i hope i get the order i hope i wrote on the order right here um at one point he tries to kill himself after having these experiences and he's sent to an asylum and this just gives him another person to engage with and talk about theology with. And this is a guy named Dr. Stone. And Dr. Stone's very educated. He knows Gnosticism or he's had patients before who had these same ideas. I think there's a suggestion there that he's aware of this because other people have had these experiences. Um, and that's, that's something I think that's on Dick's mind is that other people have kind of gone through the asylum, gone through these institutions, have had these ideas in their, in their brain. Um, so... He gets out of that eventually, and he tries to stay out of the asylum again. He doesn't go back, but he still has those those memories, and, and he talks quite a lot about that experience. It's a pretty actually intimate. It's one of his more well-developed looks at the asylum. It's not in a sci-fi setting, though, but it, it's it's realistic. But it'd be useful to compare that to maybe what we see in um, uh, We Can Build You or, or some of the other novels that deal with the patient-doctor relationship in psychiatry. Um, so during this... Phase, another one of Philip K. Dick's friends dies. This is a woman named Sherry, and she dies of cancer. And this has another profound Im impact on Philip Dick, who very much loved this woman. He was, I think, living with her a while when he kind of broke up with his, his wife. And there's all kind of the family politics. Oh, I forgot to mention this issue with his son. Now, the son here is named Christopher. That's Philip Dick's real son's uh, name. His, I think it's his last kid that was born though, uh, with, with, Tessa, with Tessa Dick. 
Um, and sometime after the pink beam experience, he started having visions of a birth defect that his son had, and then took he, he thought this was going to risk the life of his child, so he took the kid to the doctor, and the doctor confirmed there was this a birth defect, and then it was repaired, and it potentially saved his life. This is a story a lot of Philip Dick fans know, and it's, it's really kind of spooky. Um, I don't know what to say about it. I, I don't believe in the supernatural, um, so I don't believe he was getting knowledge about it but you know I, I think probably it's more likely he saw something about his kid that bothered him and he took him to the doctor but who am I to know I can't know what really happened well anyways after getting out of the asylum Dick continues to have kind of visions and, and continues to write his exegesis in fact he writes it more intensely when he's living with Sherry and that becomes kind of a, a contentious point in their relationship and eventually Philip K. Dick decides that he needs to go on a pilgrimage to find the next savior. And he, he thinks he's being directed on this pilgrimage, basically directed on this quest by, by God, by this logos, by this, this information, which he calls zebra. Um, and he, he kind of progressively alienates those he loves and those he's close to with this talk and with this obsession with this with the zebra and his obsession with his exegesis and, and all these other things going on in his, his life. He just kind of alienates the people around him. And um, some, of, some of the good parts of the novel come from, you know, Dick's realization of just how weird he's getting and, and how it is hurting the people around him. And, and the kind of the judgment he makes towards the end of the novel is, is it really worth it? Is it, you know, are there things more valuable than, than the truth? Even if he is truthful, if he gets to it by abandoning everything that makes life worth living is that worthwhile now one piece of information philip dick seems to get is that a man named uh, what's his name ferris fremont is the true ruler or was a true ruler ruler who was overthrown um, so we start to get to the idea that there's a secret political reality like nixon was a facade that's actually just maybe an avatar or uh, a reflection or more likely a facade over the true beastly ruler, a man named Ferris Fremont. Um, so over the first, more than the first half of the novel, almost the first two thirds of the novel is this stuff I've just described. Mostly it's theological discussions with his friends, passages from the exegesis, ideas he has, conversations he has with horse over fat, mm -hmm. this aspect of his, of his um, uh, divided mm -hmm. personality. You know, horse over fat being the kind of the crazy Philip Dick and then the narrator being uh, more more or less sane. In fact, often the weirdest ideas are always like horse of a fat said this or whatever. So Dick's fairly careful in how he distributes, separates the work in, of his character. So anyways, years pass. And so the later part of the novel is then set in 1982, I think, maybe 83. It's, it's eight years after the original Pink Bean event. Um, so this is the future according to the novel's timeline. So... At this point, Dick has decided he's going to go on this pilgrimage. He's going to search for the Savior. He doesn't quite know where he goes. He's going to go, but he knows it's out there somewhere. He knows the Savior's been been born. In fact, the fall of Nixon feeds into this idea that something happened in, at that time that kind of disrupted this, this offensive political reality that's under the surface of the world we live in. And so he's getting all ready to go. His friends think he's crazy, but they really can't, can't stop him. And eventually, though, uh, Kevin comes to him one day and say, you got to see this movie. This movie's called Valis. 
B-A-L-I-S. And so they go to see it, and what they see is a surrealist science fiction film. Uh, we do get a description of kind of the scenes of, of the, the film, but it's mostly we get a feeling for what this movie is about in the, in, in the after discussions I have, because it's presented as a really surreal movie where there's images that don't make any sense. They're just kind of shot at it. And, you know, some movies you see once and, you, you know, it's all clearly laid out. Other movies you have to go back to and see several times. This is one of those kind of movies you have to go back to and see several times and keep track of all the symbolism and the imagery and, and, and kind of write everything down and, and, and have a very clear idea of what that film is. So they see it after the movie. Kevin's like, well, what do you think? And Dick's a bit baffled by the film, to be honest. And then Kevin says, I've, I've already seen this once before, so I know there's a lot in here that corresponds with what you've been talking about, all this weird zebra stuff. It has a lot of interesting parallels, you know, in the symbolic level and some of the themes or whatever. So, um, you, know, it, the, you know, the film basically is a story, a science fiction story, in which an, e, an extraterrestrial intelligence um, overthrows a tyrant called Ferris Fremont. So this name comes up again, Ferris Fremont. And this, of course, is striking. Um, and so then there's this idea that Dick starts to have that maybe there are like kind of aliens kind of as part of this. Um, as we'll see, the, the cultists he eventually meets who also believe in this valid stuff, you know, believe that, they're, that the humans are actually aliens on a, on a poisonous planet. And that's why we all go kind of go nuts here. And, and Valus is trying to keep us sane. But I'll, I'll jump to that in the future. So the movie was made not by a, a traditional f um, movie or film star. It was made by a rock star named Eric Lampton. And he's known popularly as Mother Goose. That's like his stage name as a, as a music performer. And then the music, which is... Uh, a really bizarre type of music. It's, called, it's actually called synchro, synchronicity music. And it somehow fits with these themes too. And Kevin seems to think, and Phil Dick seems to come to believe that this music itself is conveying information. It itself is part of this logos, as part of this Valis narrative. Um, so the guy who makes this music Brett, is Brett Mimi. And so they watch the movie like several more times. They take notes and then they go into these really fun, deep readings of it. And, you know, people do this now on the Internet, right? They'll they'll watch a movie and then they'll they'll watch a two hour movie. and They'll make a four hour YouTube video dissecting every bit of why this movie sucks or why it's good. You know, scene by scene, comparing it, you know, it's it, like they get obsessed with these these works. Um, and, it, you know, it's a bit, I guess, over the top sometimes, but. You know, as someone who doesn't have the most comfortable relationship with work, I find it fascinating, you know, how people can spend their time, you know. And if we are getting to a post-scarcity situation where jobs are going to be scarce, we need to find ways to keep ourselves busy. And, and one way you can do that is analyzing films and, and, and throwing up content on YouTube. Why not? Uh, of course, this is pre-YouTube, pre so what you instead of scene-by-scene scene analysis on on a YouTube channel, it's just Kevin and Dick, and eventually David sees it too a few times, talking about this film, writing down every single scene. You know what was that? Like, there's one moment where, a, like, a beer can is run over, and that has huge significance for the viewers. There's Dallas is, in the movie is a satellite. Um, it's, it's not clearly a one for one thing in this world, but in the film, Dallas is presented as a satellite. Um, 
and they actually see the satellite uh, on pictures and stuff and you can kind of dig it all up and, and dissect it all but the movie itself is just kind of a really bizarre surrealist thing so they do this deep reading um, and then they decide well instead of you going nuts and going off to Egypt or on some quest for the grave of Akhenaten or whatever he was thinking of doing uh, yeah, Akhenaten has a major role in this actually in Dick's thinking um, that's why I threw his name out there but uh, Akhenaten of course was the Egyptian pharaoh who uh, sort of converted to a type of, of monotheism surrounding the sun god um, anyways Dick, by this point, has become famous. I, I kind of like how Dick projects. And he, by this point, he'd already sold the rights to do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, become Blade Runner, and I think that movie was in production late in his life, so maybe he was already predicting a, a comfortable future. But in this novel, he gives himself a fairly comfortable future already, and, and uh, I like that, with Hollywood connections, people he can call, right? So he's able to basically get in contact with Eric uh, Lampton via his Hollywood connections and he basically calls up his agents or something and says I want this guy for the film I'm doing and you know I was going to choose Robert Redford but I want this guy and so he gets in contact with it but instead he just sends this note like it just says King like blank or something and then they know the answer from Dick's like the knowledge he's been receiving that's King Felix which is kind of a name for the savior there's different names for the savior that come around one is like uh, King Felix, one is um, uh, Saint, like Hagia Sophia comes up again, as it did in Deus Ere. This idea of Sophia, knowledge, wisdom, the Logos being, you know, the name for Christ. Um, also, there's many other saviors come before, Zoroaster, um, Mohammed, Christ, the Buddha, etc. Um, but the new one, so the name, kind of the placeholder for the coming savior is going to be this King Felix. And he knows the answer. He answers back King Felix. And then Eric Lampton gets in touch with him. And they basically invite him out to their 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 house to, to take a trip. And so Kevin, David, Philip K. Dick, and Horse Lover Fat in PKD's mind go to visit the, the Lamptons. So they go see the Lamptons. So it's going to be Eric Lampton. It's going to be his wife. And it's going to be Mimi, who it turns out is dying. This musician is dying. And they're basically running this strange cult. Uh, now, it matches a lot of the points that, that Philip Dick has come to through his kind of own studies into Zebra and his writing of his exegesis. Um, but the heart of their cult is basically surrounding their two-year-old daughter named Sophia, who they see as the savior. And she talks like, like an adult about theology to them. Um, now, there's different interpretations of how this is. Of course, the straight-up one would be that she is a savior and she does have some kind of access to the Logos, and that's why she can speak that way. But I think it's Kevin deduces that maybe she's just... Um, maybe she's just being like spoken... She's, they're speaking through a microphone or something to make it look like she's talking. But the important thing is when they, they finally sit down and meet with Sophia and talk with her, PKD's Philip Dick's schizophrenia ends and horse lover fat disappears from the scene. Uh, then Sophia, they, they have a chat for a while, some more theological talk, and then she tasks these friends with starting a religious movement. And they actually form a group called the Rabadan Society, which is just the three of them. And they're basically going to be the evangelists. They're going to go out and, and spread this religion, essentially. They're going to be the, the apostles. So after this meet, meeting, they return home and they get news. 
not long after they return back and they start thinking about how they're going to proceed, they get news that Lampert killed his daughter using a laser, trying to extract knowledge or trying like an information transfer via through his daughter. And he kills her with a laser. It's pretty horrific. And like the police are coming and it's kind of an accident, deemed an accident, but essentially they murder their daughter who they think is a savior trying to like get access to her knowledge. Um, so again, if you look at this novel objectively, it's got, this is a pretty horrific uh, moment. But with this, with the death of Sophia, PKD says schizophrenia returns, horse lover fat reappears as a separate character, but now he's detachable and you can kind of go on little side quests. Um, now at this point, it's a very important part of the novel where Philip K. Dick now debates horse lover fat and basically, Philip Dick's opinion is that there's no reason to do this. This is stupid. It's nonsense. It's kind of what I feel throughout the novels. Like, stop with this gibberish, you know. Be clear. Stick with what's provable. Stick with evidence. Don't go on mad quests, you know, because you had a hallucination. You, you know, whatever happened to Philip Dick in 1974, I'm absolutely certain had some kind of physiological uh component or at least psych psychiatric uh there's nothing mystical about what happened to him I, I don't know why that's so hard to for people to sometimes to grasp i guess if you want to believe that there, there was some kind of experience there you can believe that like philip dick did but i understand why he felt that way i'm not blaming philip dick so much for thinking something profound happened to him that happens to people who have visions all the time but you know geez at some point you know write a 10,000 page exegesis uh, on something you know that's going maybe a little bit too far I, I, I suspect but what's great is Dick knows this and and he's talking back to Horse Lover Fat saying you know we're closing the book on this but at this point Horse Lover Fat is a separate identity a separate even person and he says no no I'm going on this quest I'm going to find the savior there must be someone after Sophia if Sophia is the savior and she died there must be another savior coming and I will find him and uh so he goes on this quest for the savior and then he's going to get letters philip dick's going to get letters from horse love for fat like in france and like japan various places eventually he decides he's going to go to micronesia to follow some clue uh, where he thinks the savior is going to be born so eventually this aspect of philip dick finds these clues to the savior at the same time though news comes through through them that the lamperts are having another child and that's the that's the story. That's uh, what happens in the novel. Again, if you, you know, you could kind of, th this is really difficult to do like a play-by-play -play or even scene-by-scene -scene type of analysis or reading because so much of it is just conversations about the theology of Valis, this, this idea that Philip Dick had been working on in his exegesis. And that's where I'm going to pick up with. I, I, the thing I want to do next though is, is go through my understanding of this theology as best I can. And the way to do this, uh, you don't have to go to the exegesis to do it. Philip Dick gives you those selections uh, and they're kind of in an appendix in an order. And if you read through them, it doesn't take long. It takes like 20 minutes to read through them. You can kind of have a, a clear idea of what he's trying to say. When you see it all on the table at once, it, I'm not saying it makes sense, but it's, it's a little more clear. All right, so let's go. Now, again, if I'm wrong about any of this, and I probably am wrong about a lot of it, there's a lot of people who know this better than me. I've always kind of avoided this part of Philip K. Dick's work. I, I don't really, I'm not comfortable in this zone, but I'm trying to do my best for you. Um, so if I, but if I'm wrong or if I'm missing something or if I'm off, you know, really far off, 
just write me or or, send, or, or, or correct me. I, I'm totally admitting that this is going to be a, a, a flawed effort on the, from the get-go. Uh, but let me try. Um, now, f at, we start with the logos being the reality, right? So this is just that kind of general, you know, it's not even straight-up idealism. I was using this language of idealism and materialism before. You know, like Marxist materialism is... The material realities affect how we see and how we think. And then you got the Hegelian idealism where the, the conversations we have within ourselves and within society lead to new structures and new, new realities. Um, this is a kind of a, a broader uh, platonic, is, is that the right word for it? Kind of idealism in which the logos is the whole reality, right? That, that's, it's Christ, it's truth, it's, 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 it's knowledge, it, it's... It's what frames um, all of reality. It, so our reality is not material. Our reality is simply logos. If we change our thinking, if we can change our understanding of the knowledge, our reality will change around us. Um, added to this is the idea that the empire never ended. Uh, we have our reality is false. It's to cover up this fact that the empire never ended. And this empire is pretty explicitly stated to be the Roman Empire. The date for this facade beginning is given as, as the date that Jerusalem fell during the Roman occupation after the Jewish rebellion in 60 CE. So early theologians and philosophers knew this, knew that the Logos is reality, and some of them know about the false reality that's been thrust over us. So uh, there's a lot of exploration of various thinkers, like the ancient Greeks, the ancient Egyptians, uh, Buddha, these people, or even medieval philosophers who, who know this and are kind of carrying on the truth. So this cult that we meet, the Lamberts, is not the only such cult that has ever existed. Um, so the reality is, is the Holy Roman Empire, but time has stopped in, in a way. Um, so the whole temporal aspect of this is really confusing because at one point Dick says we're like in the year 100 CE in reality. So somewhere 30 years added from the fall of Jerusalem or 40 years added from the fall of Jerusalem to now. I'm not quite sure where that was added in, but um, that's the basic idea. Kind of time stopped at that point. We've been living in this delusion ever since. Uh, now, some Christians know this as well. To quote this, the Rose Cross Brotherhood wrote, Ex Deo Nasimor in Jesus Mortima Per Spiritum Sanctum Revisimicus, which is to say, from God we were born in Jesus we die, by the Holy Spirit we live again. This signifies that they had rediscovered the lost formula for immortality, which the empire had destroyed. The empire never ended. Um, so... He saw the Savior, which he sometimes calls the plasmate, is essentially information, and it's um, an avatar of the Logos, which I think we already know. So Sophia in the story is imagined to be this avatar of the Logos, and that's why she can speak, because she is essentially information. Um, now, material change, moving on, material change is a change in our knowledge, or essentially material change is, is a false knowledge. So this is a way of explaining material like false realities. Of course, that's a theme that Dick explores a lot. He's never really gone, gone at it this way, I think. And I'll talk about that later. But the, the reason reality shifts around us and changes and our, our reality is not stable or secure, uh, we're living in a false front, in a facade, 
The reason is, is because knowledge has changed or knowledge is false. Our knowledge of the reality is false. And the way to kind of get to the truth is, of course, or the way to reconstruct the real world is to get to the real knowledge. Right. And we should then be listening for and hearing the logos. But this has been hampered in various ways. So the, the, the act of reclaiming the logos, which Dick think happened to him with the pink beam, is called anamnesia, which is essentially the negation of amnesia. So it's the end of forgetfulness. It's the end of forgetting. Uh, so this assumption there is we remembered it, right? It wasn't just we learned something. The knowledge had always been there. It's just we had forgotten it. And then an anamnesia is the act of unforgetting. So the enemy of the empire is information. At one point, he even defines uh, this. Quote, the empire is an institution, the codification of derangement. It is insane and imposes insanity on us by violence, since its na nature is a violent one. To fight the empire is to be infected with its derangement. This is a paradox. Whoever defeats a segment of the empire becomes the empire. It proliferates like a virus, imposing on its full form on the enemies. Thereafter, it becomes its enemies. Against the empire is opposed to living information, the plasmate or physician, which we know as the Holy Spirit or Christ discorporate. These are two principles, the dark, the empire, and the light, the plasmate. In the end, mind will give victory to the latter. All right. So he also says in these passages from the exegesis that we are storage vessels for the logos, and the means for us being storage vessels of the logos is DNA. And of course, if you think all reality is the logos, you're almost like in a pantheistic environment, right? So the idea that we're just part of that overall reality, and the fact that we have knowledge, information in our DNA. I think maybe that's the wrong word for it, but uh, plenty of people, and I've heard the, uh, Christians use that term of seeing DNA as knowledge, as information. Uh, I don't know if that's the right biological way to frame it, but that's certainly something what Dick thinks. Dick, think, Dick thinks DNA is knowledge. So I hope that uh, explains uh, the core ideas in Vallis, the core theological ideas. There's, of course, many other dimensions to it. So that more going on. There's a Grail quest. There's a um, there's other stuff too. I'm not going to remember it all. It, it all kind of flows through you. I, I guess I'm in the Black Iron Prison, so I don't. It doesn't quite awaken anything clear in my mind. But anyways, what relationship does this philosophy have to Dick work? Dick's work. So there's basically um, we can do this historical reading of Dick's works. I'm doing it chronologically, so I think you know where I stand on that, um, where we kind of see what themes interested him in the 50s, what themes interested him in the 60s, and try to explain why, try to understand that change, to see how themes change over the evolution of his writing. You know, when he went from one attitude about marriage to another, uh, when, you know, how his characters change and evolve, his views on institutions, his views on power, um, the kinds of stories he's writing, it kind of changes over time. And we can then understand why after 1974 he starts to write more about theology because he had this weird experience. And we can understand this is where his mind is late in life. Another way people might want to read this is to see essentially Vallis in all his work and to go back and look for clues for Vallis in, in all his other works, right? And of course, it's easy to do that because Vallis talks about shifting realities. It talks about how material reality is not real. Um, and yeah, you know, you, you have that all the way back to Eye in the Sky. You, have, you don't you go back to the 50s and find stories that explore that. You have, you know, a material, kind of, not I don't want to say materialist, but a 
kind of an explanation for the origin of religion. Well, he was doing that all the way back in the skull, one of his first stories. So you can kind of project back. But is he, I, my feeling is I don't find much evidence that in anything before like Deus Ere, that I can really point to and say, wow, this really makes me think of Alice, or this really makes me think of, of, of you know, zebra or the exegesis or what, you know. And in fact, when you read Dick's own exegesis, the edited version that we have, um, and you look at the, you look up books. I mean, that's why I bought it eventually, because I just wanted to see what Dick says about different works. And he's struggling to kind of fit different works into it. And he does it in a really bad way, I would, I would argue. I'm not going to go through it book by book. But, you know, look up Ubik or look up Eye in the Sky or something in the back of the Exegesis Index and just find the references to the book. And sometimes it's just a passing reference mention of a book that, oh, this is kind of like that, or it's a really a stretch. I don't really see it there. So I don't think Dick is a, is a reliable narrator of his own career at this point because uh, he's so obsessed with these ideas. So you kind of project certain ideas onto these works that don't fully belong there. That's what I think. Um, so let's take the two kind of baseline themes. Uh, of course, we've looked at a lot more but than these, but let's take the two base ones, like the, the false reality and humanity, kind of the three stigmata stuff, right? The three stigmatas were false reality, alienation, and, and despair, right? So two are really about our, the human condition and one is about reality. So false reality, um, here there's a new cause, to be frank. It's, it's not about forgetting the reality that once was. It's not living in the lack iron prison in earlier works. For instance, uh, when he first was exploring with shifting realities in his early novels, like his Cosmic Puppets, it's a battle between the gods where we're playthings of the gods. Yeah, there's a divine, there's a spiritual element to it, but it's nothing like what's described here. Uh, or in Eye in the Sky, where it's about how we all experience the world a little bit differently. So it's really a thought experiment in shifting perspectives and subjectivities. Or time out of joint where it's purely political. It's purely about achieving some concrete goal by a state. Um, it's another, another novels will be drugs that create the alternate reality. And others will be technology that will achieve it. Uh, this is being replaced with that very broad concept of the empire. And I don't know where it gets us. You know, it, it's kind of like a dead end concept. I don't think Eye in the Sky is a dead end concept. You read Eye in the Sky, you come away and you think... That's really interesting how, when you really think about it, we all do see the world through our own kind of glasses. We're all, we're, we all have our tainted or tinted glasses, and, and we all see things through our own ideology. That's a useful idea, right? When you have a conversation with someone and you find you reach this a sticking point, and you realize, well, it's because we're looking at the world a little bit different, right? Maybe we need another way to come at this to find agreement. There's something value in that. Or, of course, you know, when you have worlds where there are states that do have propaganda, that do command loyalty of their people through manipulation of knowledge, a novel like um, Time of the Joint reminds us, yes, indeed, this, these powers exist. States will manipulate knowledge for our, their own purposes. And I can use that, you know, as I struggle against censorship or whatever. That doesn't exist with Valve. I don't know what this gets us to say the empire never ended. What does that even mean? I mean, it's, it's bad history, first of all. Yeah, we could say empire still exists in the world. It's not the same. That empire has changed the way power works has changed. To see power as just a black iron prison for eternity 
we're kind of back into that kind of Orwellian idea that power is just the boot smashing on the human face for all time. It's We can't really escape it. Um, and yeah, you can go on your spirit quest to Micronesia looking for the savior, but you know, it, at least the, the picture we have here, there's no way out. And if we take Divine Invasion as a sequel, you know, there, you know, that's that deception has remained, it seems. So I don't know. I, I just don't see where this gets us. And I don't see a real connection to his previous explanations. It's just because it's about shifting realities or blurred reality or something doesn't mean he's talking about the same things in the 50s and 60s as he is in 1981. Uh, same thing. What is human? Well, throw out empathy, throw out uh, all that robot stuff. It's not all reality is now all the manifestation of the logos. Humanity is simply that. He never wrote anything like that before. He always cared very deeply about individuals, subjectivity, different experiences, caring for one another. You know, love is something he cares a lot about. Actual meaningful relationships. Uh, it's all it's all kind of dumped out, out of the window here. And we just get this very weird definition of humanity as simply an avatar of, of, of the logos, right? Conveying information through our DNA. There's no history here, so there, we can't talk about frontier. There's a lot of other issues that I'm interested in when I read Philip Dick, whether it's the frontier or family and marriage or uh, perception or states, institutions that, you know, it's just all those things just they might be here in a little in a little bit. And I'll talk a bit about that later on, but they're all kind of dead ends. That's my feeling on this. And so I don't see how the ideas of Alice can really be projected backwards into his earlier works. Now, I know there's people who disagree with me. Um, I think the closest comparable work is Deus Ere, um, especially the early part of that novel where we have a conversation about so Hagia Sophia and Sophia as Christ. We have direct conversations about Gnosticism. So, yeah, I think in Deus Ere, there is. And I, obviously, when he was writing that, he was playing with these ideas at some point, at least writing, doing a rewrite. I don't know what was in the original draft, I know, you know, he wrote with Solanzi, you know, the Gnostic stuff. And that happened, that was happening, that was, he was writing that right after the 74 experiences. So he's already interested in that. And it, it's, it is in that novel, but that's the close, farthest back I think we really can go. So now I want to talk about what I think some of the good things in this novel are. Um, I, I think there's a lot of fun bits. I, I think the self-referential and, and sometimes the self-criticism that Dick gets into is really good. I like how Dick is presented as getting famous and with money to spend and he's, you know, not eating dog food or whatever. Um, and that's kind of cute. I think some of that is maybe him imagining himself being rich and wealthy shortly. It, it's kind of sad, though, when you think he dies in 82 and he never fully got to enjoy uh, a retirement. And there's a lot of books we didn't get from him, I'm sure. Um, I don't know if they're all going to be like Valos. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have been such a big loss in my view, but you know, if he ever got back to writing like he did in the '60s, certainly that that is a loss. Um, but just, I mean, I think he earned it. I think he deserved it for um, what he did give the world, and he never really got to experience that, unfortunately, except maybe a year or two. Um, I really like the depictions of friendship and conversation here. I I just love that. And I think it's such a great foil to like religious conflict and, and, and war. I mean, that people can sit down and talk about their weird, crazy ideas. I, I don't I'm not a believer in much of anything myself, but I, you know, I like the idea of people sitting down and talking about theology and chit chatting. And I'll, I'll go on 
you know, I'll go watch a debate between a Christian and a Muslim and enjoy myself when doing it. Um, as long as it's friendly and, and in good spirits. I like philosophy. Philosophy is kind of a big conversation, and, and you and I appreciate it. Even if the ideas don't strike me as that useful, uh, I think the conversation can be useful. So I like that. I, I really was touched by that part of this this novel, and it takes up a lot of it. Um, you got some strong characters here, especially uh, Kevin and David, the friends, and there's some really touching moments like Dick's love for Gloria, his love for um, uh, what was her name that other woman he was living with, Sherry. Uh, even the relationship with his wife, who's kind of estranged from much of the novel, is is presented well. So I, I really like those touching moments here and the, the friendships and the characters, uh, at least some of them. The scenes in the mental ward are great. I, I think it's it's some of his best depictions of, of institutional life, and they're really drawing it right from life. Um, his earlier depictions are kind of always in science fiction novels uh, or... I don't, I don't even read all the mainstream ones, but the ones I have read before are always in a science fiction context. You might have like a robot doctor or, or an alien doctor like in the game Players of Titan, but this is very real and it's really drawn from his personal experiences. And it's, you know, the oppression of it is, is so real and it's so manifest as you read it. I, I like the humor. I like the self-referential humor and the criticisms and the every once in a while when Dick jumps in and says, you know, I'm crazy. You know, you know, he's kind of doing it to horse lover fat, but it's like, I'm crazy. Uh, I love that moment when he's talking about Wagner and he's imagining Wagner who comes to heaven thinking Parsifal get it grants a man and uh, the, you know, the gods close the door or God close the door saying like Parsifal's garbage. I didn't understand it. Uh, you know, that's Dick thinking about his, how his exegesis will be received in heaven, I think. Um, so those are some of the things I like about the novel. There's other bits, but there's there's moments that, that make this novel worthwhile. I, I personally think it should have ended with that conversation between Fat and Dick, where Dick says, let's get real. Uh, instead, he goes on and he has Horse Lover Fat leave and go on his little spirit quest. I think, uh, and then you got to explain why he's in two places at once. I prefer the, you know, kind of the moment of sanity that Philip Dick portrays at the end. And, you know, because it gives me some optimism that maybe by this point in his career, Dick was getting over uh, whatever happened to him in 74. And, and he wouldn't have, you know, he, he dies in 82, but he was a young man, fairly young man still. So, you know, I hate to think he would have been dwelling over that for 20 years or more. Uh, what happened to him and continue to write the exegesis or whatever. So... Anyways, I, I, I think that's when it should have ended. Um, the bad, obviously, I, I don't like this type of philosophy. I, I don't like the way it's wanderingly presented. Uh, to its defense, though, that's how philosophy often is when you're just chit-chatting with friends. You kind of get there pieces at a time. Um, but frankly, I just don't care about zebra. I mean, I can kind of observe it. I can kind of sit there and, like, you know, my fist under my chin say... Wow, that's kind of wild. You know, maybe like you overhear someone at the bar talking some weird stuff. But even though there's kind of an interest there, I don't care, really. I, I don't want to work hard enough to understand this philosophy to really understand. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to put in the effort, the labor it would take to understand this philosophy. So I'm just going to shut out. And I often did when I read this. And I've read it a few times now. And each time I kind of shut 
my mind shuts down and says, yeah, you had me for the first sentence, but no, I don't care. You know, it's kind of just fun to almost like background music to listen to. And in fact, I did do an audiobook version of this this time. Um, I don't like, I think Fat's role is mishandled in the end of the novel, um, where he's not just a part of Dick's mind, like a split, kind of a self-conscious reflection of his own divided mind. Instead, he actually becomes a separate person. And I don't know what we're supposed to do with that. I don't like reading the exegesis sections. I don't. I, I think that just breaks up the narrative. It's like an epigraph. For a while, it's like an epigraph every page, almost, where it's just weird stuff thrown in. If, if you can't explain it, in simple words to his friends, he's not doing a better job showing me the, the rambling, his, his late night ramblings. And then generally, I think despite the self-criticism, at the end of the day, the novel's self-indulgent and Dick can't help himself in, in, in making this about him and his experiences. And none of the other characters really matter at the end of the day. Uh, it's all about him. And even with Kevin, right? You got these Kevin and, and David, these interesting characters with foils to Dick, but in the end, they're just wrong, right? In the end, they just get convinced. Um, yeah, in the end, everything he believes is sort of confirmed. And even when it's like taken away from him, it's confirmed later on. So, yeah, I think that's kind of self-indulgent. I would prefer a novel about a crazy person meets some other crazy people in a cult, finds out how just crazy he has been, and then and then kind of coming to terms with the reality. I mean, that's a stronger narrative for me. And we almost get it, and we don't quite get it. All right. Uh, wow, I've only been doing this for about an hour. I, I thought this would take me uh, a couple hours. I guess that's what we save when we don't do the the close reading chapter by chapter. I've been quoting much. Um, yeah, so um, themes, other themes. Um, obviously, I got to the heart of it, but I think there's other things we can talk about um, in this novel that are here. Um, drug use is plays a big role here. Um, Especially like early on, right away, we're talking about drugs. And we think we're in a classic 1960s Philip Dick novel about drugs. And maybe an extension of A Scanner Darkly. Um, where is this? He's talking about Gloria. This is his friend who kills himself. Quote, since he lived in Marine County, he, she was several hours drives away. Few inducements would have gotten him to make such a drive. This was another serving up of lunacy. Three hours drive each way for 10 nebutals. Why not just the total of the car? Gloria was not even committing her irrational act rationally. Thank you, Timothy Leary, Fat thought. You and your promotion of the joy of expanded consciousness through dope, end quote. And his criticism of, of Leary and the drug culture is, is on display here, as it is in A Scanner Darkly. It's not the obsession of this novel as the way it is in The Scanner Darkly, but he, he hasn't made peace with the drug culture. He's still quite critical of it. Um, in the, and then throughout there, we have the whole theme of mental illness. I mean... Of course, fat is a projection of Dick's madness. He goes to an asylum. His friends have bouts of insanity. Gloria kills herself. Um, in fact, he writes at this point, as a matter of fact, fat had lost his own wife the year before the mental illness. It was like a plague. No one could discern how much was due to drugs. This time in America, 1860 to 1970, and this place, the Bay Area of Northern California, was totally fucked. I'm sorry to tell you this, but that's the truth. Fancy terms and ornate theories cannot cover this fact up. The authorities became as psychotic as those they hunted. End quote. Um, I mean, great. I mean, that's so much to unpack in that. And it's, it's just, it's wonderful. Uh, if this was the novel, actually, this 
dimension. In fact, I think transmigration of Timothy Archer is sort of this stuff just pulled onto a whole novel. It's, it's kind of about a society going nuts and uh, California. Um, so there's a lot here in mental illness. I don't have to go through too much more, but if you, if you want to understand Dick's views on mental illness, you gotta, you got to get through this book and, and understand it. Um, the, the whole theme of religious origins is something Dick did a lot, all the way back to the skull, as I suggest in one of his earliest stories. Uh, here we have a cult, essentially, uh, a cult around their own two-year-old daughter who they end up sacrificing in some weird experiment. Um, but you have the, a moment there where it's like, we're going to start a religion. We, we start an organization. We're going to be the apostles. We're going to start this religion. And um, yeah, new religious movements pop up all the time. Again, transmigration of Timothy Archer is kind of about that. It's, it's about that ish, ish, issue of, of, of religions beginning in weird cultures and weird societies. In fact, that novel I, I love, actually. Right? It's much preferable to, to this one or Divine Invasion. Um, what else here? Friendship. I don't know. I, I don't know if I've ever talked about friendship before in Dick's novels. I, I've never, I don't remember it being this strongly displayed. There are characters who have some solidarity and connection, but not, I mean, I guess in Scanner Darkly, yeah, you have just friends hanging out, right? Here you have that too. And, and, but you don't see it in his earlier novels so much, just friends hanging out. Everyone has a purpose. Everyone's there for a purpose or they have a relationship or it's a meeting for something. You know, I, maybe it's something that, you know, after he wrote all his novels in the 60s, he didn't write much in the 70s. He must have spent a lot of his time just hanging out, right, with friends. He became famous by that point, attracted people to come by. All those friends he writes about in the end of Scanner Darkly, who suffered due to the drug culture, you know. And I, and I like that image of Dick as someone who just needs friends and likes being around people and is enjoying the company of others. It's, it's kind of beautiful, and, and, and I appreciate it. Uh, we have a marriage uh, described here. It's kind of off-screen mostly. Uh, the woman's name is Stephanie. This is, I believe, uh, Tessa, uh, a depiction of Tessa. But they're estranged for much of, of the novel. So Dick actually basically imagines that marriage being over. But uh, once again, we have a marriage and a broken marriage, and, and this one is directly from Philip Dick's life. Uh, we got a lot here on media, the whole role of the film uh, of doing that, the, the kind of the media culture is, is kind of played with interesting ways. Um, how, you know, this group tries to use a movie to spread their ideas, for instance, and how a movie kind of connects people. It connects Dick to this other group of people who have the same ideas. Um, and of course, media does that all the time, right? Now with social media, we see much more of that where... You know, if you want to find someone who shares your weird belief, if you're a flat earther, well, there's whole channels of that on, on YouTube and, and all that. So it's, it's kind of a community building thing. And we see it a little bit here. And, and I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into kind of forecast the internet culture, but the way they talk about the movie, it just reminds me of those people obsessing about a film on, on, on a YouTube channel. All right, um, disease, uh, we have characters dying of cancer. Um, cancer uh, in fact, disease is talked about a lot, especially with the problem of evil. Um, and the problem of evil, I'll get to in a bit, but you know, there's characters who suffer a lot, uh, both from addiction and from cancer and other diseases. And it, it's kind of a specter over. And again, that's a theme that Dick didn't deal with much in his earlier works. It shows up in A Scanner Darkly via addiction. And it shows up here in a lot of other ways. 
Um, Gnosticism, I don't have to say more about that. Gnosticism is a theme of this novel. It's a Gnostic novel, if there ever was one. Um, what else? Uh, oh, power is, is a big part of this, um, especially with this idea of the black guy in prison. I still don't like this as a vision of power, but because it doesn't really explain too much. I, I like my power to have explanations. I, you know, I like to be able to open the newspaper, read about a, a development, to know who funded it, why, who bought the land, you know, who who's paying off who in city hall, that kind of thing. That's I want my power visible because I want to fight it, I, or I want to at least be aware of it. I want to know it. To just say something like the empire never ended or we're in a black iron prison gives me no. It doesn't empower me to do anything about it. Um, but anyways, here's what he says about power. This is on page two thirteen, chapter four. Once in a cheap science fiction novel, Fat had come across a perfect description of the Black Iron Prison, but set in the far future. So if you superimpose the past, ancient Rome, over the present, California in the 20th century, and superimpose the far future world of the android Crimea River over that, you got the Empire, the Black Iron Prison, as the supra or transtemporal constant. Everyone who has ever lived was literally surrounded by the iron walls of the prison. They were all inside of it, and none of them knew it, except for the gray-robed secret Christians. Um, now, I guess that is a pessimistic way to look at power and, and conspiracy theories, theorist types kind of talk this way, right? They talk, you know, that there's always someone pulling the strings behind the scenes. You know, everything has an explanation. It's, you know, and of course that feeds into anti-Semitic thought and many other uh, negative uh, ideas. To say there is power behind what we see is in conspiracy theory if that, you know, if we struggle and acknowledge that that can be found. I find with conspiracy theorists, it's always just, you know, maybe or, you know, did you hear about Goldman Sachs and what they're doing or, you know, Goldman Sachs connection to this or that? I mean, of course, Goldman Sachs is connected to a lot of things. They're a bank, right? Banks give out loans to things. They invest in things. That's that's what they do. It doesn't mean they're pulling the strings, right? Uh, of course, the power is, is, is systemic, though. There is capitalism, and that seems... Big. It seems unstoppable. It seems it can't be uh, overthrown. And, and I guess it's easier than to kind of have this ennui and say, oh, we're in the Black Iron Prison. What can we do? Wait for Vallis to save us. Blah. But whatever. That, that We got power here. It's just one of his most unfortunate depictions of power, you know, his entire career. Um, we got a journey. We got a lot about journey here. We got like the Grail quest alluded to. We got dick trying to take various quests we got horse lover fat taking a quest at the end we got the quest to meet the lamperts all that um and music plays a big role the last theme i like to mention is music dick likes music um he liked opera so he talks a lot about opera and then we have this brent mimi's music the synchronicity music which somehow conveys the reality of alice through the music the soundtrack of the film and they they try to break that down even when they analyze the film so a lot to think about, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough novel. It's, it's weird. It, it's, you know, I think I made my, my views clear on, 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 on Valis. I, I'm not, you know, I, I almost kind of have to recommend it like half-heartedly to at least say to have that experience and to try it. But, you know, if, if you read the first few pages and you dump it, I, I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't blame you. It depends how you feel about these things. I just don't think we should 
make too much of it. I don't think we should take this novel as seriously as some people have. I don't think it's a skeleton key to Philip Dick's works. I, I think it's a product of things that happen to him late in life, uh, social and, and psychological and, and physical things that happen to him later in his life. And he's working through them and it helped him work through them to, to write this, I suppose. So that's, um, that is what it is, but I don't think it's more than that. Um, so that does it. I, that's all I'm going to say about Vallis. Uh, for now, I'm going to come back next time with my thoughts about The Divine Invasion, uh, which is was conceived of as a sequel to Vallis, so we should consider it as such. Um, but, you know, it's set far in the future and different characters. Dick's not really in it, except as the author. So we'll do that next and, and I'll give you my thoughts. And I'll do it in the same format. I'll, I'll kind of give you my opening thoughts, then I'll, I'll, I'll give you the general plot, and then I'll, I'll kind of go through uh, the important themes and ideas and concepts um, in it. So um, in the meantime, there's probably lots I got wrong. And if you're a Vallis expert or you read the exegesis and, and, and you know everything I got wrong here, uh, which is probably a lot, I'm probably wrong about most of this or a lot of it, just let me know. I'm going to add to the conversation and I'll gladly be corrected. Uh, and yeah, let me know what you think. So send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave your comments below so everyone can see them. Um, now, the Philip K. Dick Book Club is coming to an end pretty shortly. Just uh, three more episodes that I have planned. Um, but you can listen to my other um, podcast, my main series. I'm uh, doing various works on other American writers. And, and I don't know what I'm going to do for a special series after I'm done with Philip K. Dick. Um, so I'll be around. I'm, I'm thinking of what to do after PKD. But if you have any suggestions, let me know. So um, that's all for now. See you with my thoughts on Divine Invasion next time.